Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. On Saturday, a gang kidnapped 17 North American missionaries in Haiti as the party returned from an orphanage in a suburb of Port-au-Prince. Since then, the group, known as 400 Mwozo, has demanded a ransom of $17 million for the victims, which include five men, seven women, and five children. While many locals have been kidnapped in recent years, the security on the country's roads has been increasingly threatened. This incident has drawn significant international attention. This kidnapping comes roughly two months after U.S. troops withdrew from Afghanistan. America's departure and the chaos that ensued led many expats, including aid workers and missionaries, to leave the country. We wanted to talk about how Christians in ministry should evaluate risk. What is worth putting our lives on the line for? And how do we know when we're acting selfishly or selflessly? you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor of Christianity Today. All right. So we have tons of amazingly thorny questions to get into, Ted, but I want to do our gut check today on this particular kidnapping that has drawn a lot of attention this week. Obviously, we've done uh, quick to listen podcasts about the situation in Haiti more broadly. One of the things we talked about in that podcast was that our attention is pretty much on Haiti when things go wrong. So here we are again. But that's kind of where news is as well. We kind of talk about things that are out of the ordinary and problematic. And you look at things that may be uh, need addressing or fixing. The broader questions that this raised for me was not directly about kind of Haiti, but just the long history that CT has covering uh, kidnappings and, and ransoms. If you do a search on our site for kidnapping and ransom, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of articles. The one that most comes to mind for me is, is a, a cover story that I did coming up on 20 years now about Gracia Burnham who was a missionary with her husband in the Philippines and was kidnapped actually while they uh, were taking kind of a couple of vacation there in the, in the Philippines. Kidnapped for quite some time. And then there was a, a raid to try to free them. It was killed. Uh, so the story I did looked at kind of in the different negotiations that had been happening about uh, trying to free them with the U.S. government, with New Tribes Mission, with family. And those kind of thorny questions about ransom and the theological questions about like if, <laughs> you know, Christ... You know, if Christ paid a ransom for us, does that have any present day implications for the way we should view kidnappings and ransoms and paying them? Should we care that it does seem that paying ransoms encourages more kidnappings? To what, obviously, there's a number of organizations that do pay that ransom. There's a number of organizations that have a kidnapping insurance that basically is ransom payments with additional paperwork in some ways. That's probably too blase to say, but it is. I mean, it's kidnapping insurance is, is kind of a, a prep. But I'm glad we I'm glad we get into it. Yeah, well, when you actually started talking about kidnap ransoms, I was, or sorry, kidnap insurance, I was like, doesn't that drive up kidnappings too? Right, yeah, right? yeah. Like, I wonder. My wife works for an aid agency and we do have kidnapping insurance because 
darn tootin'. Absolutely. That's the kind of best practices in, in, in a number of these cases. But there is, you do wrestle sometimes with, is this creating uh, tension? Is this creating more likelihood that, that workers in country may be more likely to be kidnapped? It is complicated. Uh, not necessarily the topic of our conversation today, but it's definitely related. Morgan, what's your gut check on the Haiti situation? So you would notice that in the intro, I also mentioned Afghanistan. And I think the juxtaposition between Afghanistan and Haiti is something that has been on my mind a lot. I think everyone who listens to the show knows that spent a lot of emotional energy thinking about everything that has happening in Afghanistan and just grieving the circumstances under which the U.S. ended up leaving. A lot of that, right, when people were leaving, a lot of it was people who are aid workers and missionaries. And I truly felt, didn't know how I felt about everyone leaving. Was stuck on one hand, like, aren't Christians supposed to be, or at least foreigner Christians, aren't they the ones that are supposed to stay and be present when all of these things are happening? Is it okay for them to just leave because they can? What about the people that they can't leave and they care for? And also really struck too, where this is an incident where things have not been safe in Haiti for a number of years, but particularly when we're talking about the roads of transportation, right? And here's a bunch of people who didn't leave and yet them not leaving and they end up getting kidnapped is going to be something that will have significant ramifications for how ministry is done, for how the world looks at Haiti, for how different international organizations choose to operate in Haiti. Obviously, for this organization itself, it has foreign policy stakes. And it makes me wonder like, oh, well, did they have a responsibility to get out and to not make this happen? So I honestly don't know how to think about these types of things, about when is it abandoning to leave because of personal security? You know, when do we, what exactly constitutes something as not being safe anymore? I mean, is it okay to leave? because you don't want to get jumped? Or is it okay to leave only when you're afraid that you're going to get sexually assaulted or killed? You know, how does it figure out when there's families involved in these types of things? You know, are we always as Christians called to put our family first? And yeah, are we always called to put them first? Or are we ever called to, you know, show loyalty to the people that we've gone over to serve in different capacities? So I'm really excited for this conversation today because I don't know how I feel, but I feel a lot of things. Who is our guest, Ted? Our guest is Dr. Anna Hampton. She is the author of a book called Facing Danger, A Guide Through Risk. And that's based on her doctoral dissertation, which is from Trinity Seminary in Newburgh. She's been in full-time ministry for 28 years. More than 17 of those years were in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Turkey, and other parts of Central Asia and the Middle East. Her and her family are now based in the U.S., but they're still doing work in Central Asia. So Anna Hampton is a pseudonym, but we're going to keep calling her Anna Hampton because that is what she publishes under. That is what she speaks under. And so we are uh, thrilled to have her here on Quick to Listen. Anna, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So help me out here. Uh, What is the key misunderstanding that we as Christians who are trying to follow God, uh, we're going to, I want to apply it to overseas work in dangerous areas in a minute, but kind of broadly, I just want to start with kind of the the, <laughs> the main point we got you out here, which is like, yeah, and risk with God means something different than just like, what's the riskiest thing? Jump in because God will take care of you. I would just have to start with the fact that there's this misconception, misconception that a theology of suffering and a theology of risk are the same thing. And 
risk is situational. And most of the time when we have a risk question, it's a specific situational question. But the church, I'm saying, I'm using the word church broadly. We could even say the global church tends to answer the risk question with a suffering answer. So while the answer is true that God is good and he works all things together for good for those who love him, it doesn't answer the actual question and therefore it does not help. And so when we were in Afghanistan, we were responsible for a very large project that was extremely valuable. And we had a lot of people that we were responsible for. And you asked the risk question and to get that verse was not helping us and it did not lead to resiliency. So theology of suffering and a theology of risk are different. And some of us have more risk than others, depending on what our calling is in life. Let's untangle that for a second, because a verse that might come to quickly to mind when someone is debating whether to do something risky in ministry, I mean, obviously there's ways to risk, but I'm thinking especially if here's an area, entering an area where you're likely to, where there's high crime. I think that would be, that would be a broad one. And the verses that may come to mind are something like, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding. Or have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do we need to think of other verses or do we need to think of those verses maybe through a different lens then it'll be okay because God's with you. Well, we we have to def- define by what does okay mean, right? Because Amer- one of the things that I discovered as I was writing the dissertation, I was bothered one day and I thought, what are all the things that people have said to me that were not helpful? And the first one that came to mind was, well, you're never safer than when you're in the center of God's will, right? <laughs> that wasn't helpful. Then I... I kept on writing and what came out of that eventually was 14 risk myths that the global church says. These are things that we repeat to comfort us, but, but they're only often they're partially true or they're used in, in a way that's, again, it's not answering their risk question. All right. So again, those verses are great, but I want to come back to the, the verse concept too. But we also have to say, well, what does that mean? Say it's going to be okay. It will be okay in eternity. Yes. But I do need to look at what are the threats and the vulnerabilities I have when I go into this high crime rate to share the gospel? Because this high crime part of whatever city you want to name in America right now, what am I risking and what is actually wise to do? For me as a young mom, there were certain things I chose not to do in ministry in Afghanistan because I did not want to subject my children to uh, even greater risk than we were already in. So I didn't go to refugee camps, for example, because I had three small children at home. I didn't want to bring disease in the home. So I evaluated risk, even though you can say I was already kind of, you know, crazy to be in Afghanistan with children. But you're always evaluating the risk in practical terms as well. But let me come back to the to the, a verse as an example. And this has really, really helped me to feel more calm. And that is, uh, let's just pick one verse of many that have a very similar thought. And that's Deuteronomy 31, 6, where it says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid for the Lord your God is with you and he won't fail you, right? So we have this great verse. But the problem is, 
is if we stay in English, which it seems like a lot of preaching does, be is a, you know, it's an, it's a, not an action verb in English. Okay. And strong looks like an adverb there, I believe, right? Be strong, be, be what, be strong. The problem is, is that in Hebrew, and you, you probably know this, be is not in there. It's stronging. It's a verb. Be, it, it's stronging and courageousing, not fearing. And so what does the action of stronging and courageousing look like? And you cannot have courage if you don't have fear. But I just have to tell you, it's not helpful when the preaching says, don't fear. You can't help it when you're afraid and you actually should be afraid. There, there should be some measure of caution when you go into a high crime situation. Because that's wise. You don't want to lose your life. We're not out here to just randomly let ourselves be killed. We're, we're there to be purposeful about serving the Lord Jesus. And so then in that moment where we walk with a lot of people who are in frontline hostile situations for the sake of the gospel, what is he asking you to do today for him right now? If you're a Chinese house pastor, church, you know, small house pastor, is he asking you to go to the church today, to the house church? Is he asking you to risk today? Or is he asking you to stay home today? Is he asking you to turn right on the street because the police are left? What is he actually asking you to do right now in this moment as you serve him? And so it's a very specific application of walking in the spirit, but also reading the text as in the Hebrew, not in a just the surface English interpretation, translation. I love that. I guess what I would anticipate is a number of people saying, yeah, okay, you know, fear is not the opposite of faith. They confirm that and they're all, yes. And actually fear can be a way in which God does speak to us <laughs> and call us. I've heard this from folks that are like, I felt God was calling me to this because I was so uh, afraid of it, you know, because I didn't want to do it. There are certain ways in which we think of it. And even despite our best efforts, as the more dangerous the call, the more the more holy the call. Or should we disentangle our attempts to hear what God is calling us to from that kind of view that that God calls us to do the thing that we're most afraid of? Let's just take Gideon as an example. There were thousands of men afraid, and the Lord said, send those men home, right? And 300 men stayed to fight the battle, right? And the preaching on that one is commonly that isn't that bad. They were afraid, so God sent them home. But God didn't actually judge those people for their fear. I believe when you read the book of Judges that those men fought another day. They just didn't fight that day because God had other purposes in mind for the battle, right? So they were not condemned for their fear. And sometimes our fear can disqualify us from a certain battle. But on the other hand, we shouldn't say, well, the more danger it is, dangerous it is, then I should go do that because that's not how the Lord evaluates us. When we walk into heaven and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, he's commending us for our obedience and faithfulness to whatever it is that he called us to. He's not calling all of us to danger. That's not going to be the, the standard by which we are evaluated from God's perspective. It's obedience and faithfulness, isn't it? So Anna, I, I hear you on that. And yet I wonder too about kind of the inverse. Would you say it is fair to say that God will hold us accountable for not doing things because we specifically went out of our way to avoid 
situations that made us afraid? Well, again, we could say if if he was calling you to do something and you didn't do it because you were afraid, then you missed an opportunity, right? And if somebody was able to walk with a person in that situation and kind of disciple them and, and see he's going to be with you in that, right? So if we're purposefully avoiding, and this is where I would say bring in John Piper's book, Risk is Right. He wrote it to the North American church that's risk avoidant and saying risk is right. The problem is, is that in Afghanistan, you can't say risk is always right or in in Haiti in this case. It's not always right. There's times when we should withdraw. There were times as that Jesus and Paul withdrew. So we should not always risk our lives. But if, but if he's calling us to do something that is risky for us, whatever it is, it might be as minor as, and, and I don't mean to downplay it, but you know, it's it's hard to go up to a stranger and and tell them about Christ. But if we avoid something he's asking us to do, then then we've we've missed an opportunity. We may have disobeyed him and grieved the Holy Spirit. He's a gracious, he's a gracious God though. So for Christians, I think we probably have this assumption that much of our convictions about risk and danger and what bravery looks like come from the Bible, but of course they also come from our culture as well. What would you say has shaped most Western Christians' perspective on what constitutes risk? We elevate people who do those dangerous things. And we tend to not elevate people who are faithful day in and day out and it doesn't look big or flashy. What looks courageous, what looks worthy of risk as the Greco-Roman white male body that's been, you know, honed for the Olympics and Aristotle and Plato, I think they were both similar on this, that that it's only courageous when you are in a forward attacking position of battle when you die. And that is what is the hero. <laughs> if you die and you're in retreat, then you're a coward and it's shameful, right? And And I'm like, well, this feels a little bit sometimes of how the church responds. My husband and I have a working theory as we travel to different mission fields that the the missionaries in that area, that geographic region, begin to take on the the spiritual and just the issues of that culture. It kind of impacts the missionaries, the the income, you know, the newcomers, foreigners. And it it seems like that in in some ways in the church, and it, we'll just talk about America because I'm an American, that we elevate that forward risk taker, even if it actually might be foolish. I mean, nobody knew that the mission was against it, but they did this. And so now we're going to elevate them instead of elevating faithfulness and obedience to the Lord and doing it in such a way that we're demonstrating the fruits of the spirit. We're doing it with relationships intact and, and authenticity of not having lots of conflict with people. You know, we've seen people, we've seen missionaries in the field just not doing well relationally with others, but to the church back home, it sure looks brave and courageous. Well, related to that, let me ask you another kind of Bible question here. And that is that question of consistency and like, what is courageous? And one of my favorite passages, because I find it so confusing, is uh, the story of Elijah in, in First Kings. Where, and you know, Elijah did have, it seems to, and First Kings seems to have this uh, 
advantage where God is directly speaking to him. God says, well, you got to go and, and tell Ahab that, you know, because you're, you know, because you're in sin, there's not going to be dew or rain in the next few years. And so Elijah does that. And then God says, okay, so now Ahab's going to want to kill you. So you need to get out of town and go hide in this ravine. And I'm like, wow, God telling this prophet to hide on the question of risk when you're like, God is with you. I'm like, isn't that so interesting that God tells Elijah to flee for his life and go hide for a while? I thought that was amazing. Every time I think of like risk and being in the Lord's care, I, I am like all over that first Kings being like, how am I supposed to know where God is telling me to risk when God is telling me to confront and when God's telling me to hide? Oh, that's such a great question, Ted. I've actually never been asked that one. (laughs) So let's back up just a little bit. Because the problem for me in Afghanistan was people would send risk stories. And actually, they never sent that one about hiding, (laughs) which I think is my husband and I will have a really good laugh about that one. We'll be spending some time looking some more. But The thing was, is people would say, you should do what Esther did because you're there for such a time as this. And then other people would say, you know, you need to leave. Paul fled over the wall in the the night. And so, you know, you're getting this back and forth, which is why I said, well, what does the Bible actually say about it? And would you know that in Hebrew, there is no word for risk. There's only stories that describe situations. And as we looked at the different stories, both in the old and the new, it seemed that you could describe three elements that really contribute to a theology of risk. And this is where I'll, I'll try to come back to your Elijah question. When we look at risking and a theology of risk, we want to say, what is our foundation, right? Like we can't risk the project. So the project kind of becomes the foundation instead of God himself. And so you're right for Elijah, that must have been, he must have felt crazy at times, like, okay, hide, now go, hide. But that's part of he was trusting God and God's timing for when he was supposed to do what he was supposed to do. I would have to say he's demonstrating that kind of faith of really walking close to the Lord to know what he would, he should do. And that God is, was his foundation. We can see that clearly. And so for Elijah, he's he's walking with the Lord. He's obeying the Lord. He's he's not letting what other people think about when he should hide or when he shouldn't hide. In risk, it's sometimes a minute. If it's a high, high risk situation, it's a minute by minute thing. And I can only say we see God's faithfulness in all of these different situations in that passage in 1 Kings 17 of God taking care of him. Even, you know, when the brook dries up and then he, and he goes and he does this other thing and the Lord provides for him. And and you get a front row seat. It's a risky moment. You don't know if it's going to turn out well or not turn out well. And it's it's like this place where your faith grows and you see God working. And it's such an honor and a privilege to be there. But it can be scary at the same time. I mean, my deep, some of my most fearful times was, I can think of a time in 2008 in Afghanistan, you know, and God was just right there. That's when he spoke to me and and it's, it was a faith-building moment. So Gail Williams was shot at point-blank range in the fall of 2008, two blocks from my house. She was working for another organization, and she was murdered by two guys on a motorcycle on the route that the kids walked to get to the international school. So you can imagine this had a major impact on the faith-based NGOs that were working there in Kabul. <clears throat> 
And in fact, that week, that day, we went into lockdown. Everybody stopped movement on the street till we could figure out what was going on. And the long part of that story is it went into an eight-month lockdown and 75% of the faith-based workers left the country. We went into lockdown and the country directors of all the faith-based organizations were meeting together to decide what to do. And it was determined that we were going to have to go into this lockdown and the threats were getting even louder from the Taliban that they were looking to kidnap and kill foreigners. And it didn't matter if it was women, men, women, or children, right? And they amply did that numbers of times with women. So I was never more tempted in my life. I'm an emancipated, educated woman. I can take the credit card and buy myself a plane ticket and get my kids on there and let my husband finish our contract. And I was so tempted to do that. I was so afraid. And I was sitting there in my kitchen on the rug, but we had a Russian heater in our house. And the Lord just brought this vision to me. And it was his hands holding a cup and I couldn't see what was in the cup. All right. Now, what this was all about was, would I be willing to stay for the lockdown period, whatever it was, they were saying, it looks like it's going to be eight months for those of us who are just going to maintain the work in the country. And it means for me that I was going to have to somehow get my myself and my children and, and just support my husband without long-term psychological um, damage? How can I be joyful and make this be a place of life and peace for my children, but also, you know, be still loving on this culture that's abrasive and, and these threats are just breathing down you of kidnapping and murder. And he was holding this cup out to me and he said, will you drink it? And I looked in the cup and I couldn't see the bottom and I couldn't see what was the end end result. There was no guarantees. There was no, I promise you Psalm 91, you're never going to stumble. You know, nothing's going to come near you. There was none of that. He just said, would you stay? And would you drink the cup? And that's what it meant was I could stay joyfully and willingly. And I would do my best to make this a fun time for my children and a, a place of restoration for my husband as he was going out to do this significant work every day. And I, I looked at the the nail holes in his hands. And I said, well, it's really a small thing he's asking me compared to what he did. And so, yes, I can do that. And would you know that then, right then, and then for the rest of the time, it was like a supernatural peace enveloped me and us. Not that I was perfect in that. I don't claim that because, you know, some of my colleagues might be listening to this. But as a community, we felt this amazing peace that was over us, even though we knew at any point, you know, something bad could happen. And so it just, it was that moment of intimacy with the Lord. And he's gracious and loving. And he's so gentle when he invites us to do something like risking our lives. He doesn't demand. He's not like a Middle Eastern, you know, ancient Mesopotamian God who demands blood. He's, he's gentle. And I would say he's worthy and he's worth it. We saw more fruit. We saw more fruit of people choosing Christ in that dark time among Afghans than at any other time that we were there. And I'm very grateful for you for sharing that with us. Thank you, Anna. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. 
In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So one of the things that gets mentioned in your story is the fact that you're talking about families that decide to stay. And for me, that's one of the really challenging elements when discussing risk is when you're making decisions about risk that affect other people, specifically one's own children. What type of wisdom do you have for those conversations? And how have you seen Christians answer those challenges in different ways? That is such an important question. And that, that's probably, I, I think that's the most often asked one. And you know, when we do risk assessment, I mean, even even Haiti before, let's go Haiti, maybe say before the earthquake even. If you did, if you did a risk assessment of Haiti before then, you would still say it's a little bit crazy to go down there with your family. But in the end, when God calls us to do something like go to Haiti or go to Afghanistan, it's going to look irresponsible from a secular perspective and even from the average churchgoer perspective, I think. And I remember one time a little old lady came up to me and said, so are you safe there, dearie? And I said, no, ma'am, I'm not safe. You know, she, she was expecting a different answer. <laughs> well, first of all, we have to recognize that this is, people are going to say this is crazy, right? We have to, we walk with people and say, what's your calling? What is God calling you to? And you really have to know, and it can't just be the husband. It has to be both the husband and the wife. What are they called to in agreement? Because when things get hard, that's when you want to leave. And you have to remember what he's called you to and what you're, you know, willing to face. 
I, I say that because I think of times where people have left because of pregnancies that they're concerned might not get adequate treatment if they decide to stay in a place. I would say that I personally, with that particular example, I've had somewhat of a visceral reaction to that because part of me says like, didn't you know that was a risk when you decided to go down there and to leave a country for those reasons after you've said like, I felt called to go to a place challenges my kind of understanding about someone being called to a place. And when we think of calling, when we're evaluating the risks, is it okay to evaluate those risks in light of being an American citizen and having an American passport and saying, well, if a certain threshold of things gets reached, I'll just go back and return? Or would you say that that's kind of um, callous to the situation that's on the ground and not actually showing a certain level of um, seriousness about what it means to be called to be somewhere or being called to a community? But you can't just say there's only one way we're going to evaluate a situation, right? Because Jesus called us to also be stewards of kingdom resources, which includes my body and my pregnancy, because that's two people. And then if I choose to say, well, I want to be like the people and I'm going to give birth in a substandard hospital that doesn't have appropriate cleanliness and no blood supply and no NICU and I and or my baby dies, you know, we as a family might be finished in ministry because we might not be able to recover from that, right? So there's a stewardship that has to be brought in to the question, what is being a good steward and what has God provided for this? So I think that's part of the problem is we we can't always boil these things down to very simple blanket answers for every situation. And when I first went uh, into ministry, I had a calling as a single woman, but then I got married. And so then my calling, the call and what I'm willing to sacrifice, and there's a change, right? And then when the children come, then I have to decide again, what is my trigger point? What is where, where is my calling and when I'm going to sense that God's asking me to leave? Now, any risk consultant worth their profession would say you have to have a trigger point. You have to know when this thing happens. So it, it's wise to say, okay, I'm called to this place. What are the threats? How am I going to deal with those situations? And what is being a good steward to long-term endure in that situation? And, and the point of fact is, is we never can fully identify with the people. There will always be the outsider. I just want to ask for grace and, and compassion as people work through these complex situations. You know, the example you use of, of pregnancy, it was never advised to give birth in, in Afghanistan. You know, and very few foreign women ever did. They usually flew out to Dubai or to their passport countries that had better medical care. It's, it's always wise to evaluate these things also from a kingdom stewardship perspective so that we can long-term serve in the place that he's called us to be. Anna, I want to talk about saviorism. How does that affect how we Christians understand calling, specifically Western Christians that may feel called somewhere, and how we often evaluate risk and danger? God will use scripture, but we have to remember that he's building his body around the church. It's a, it's a community Right. And so he might be calling me, but don't cherry pick one verse and say, it's all about me, you know, and, and you're and bringing in the risk and danger of, oh, that's great. I'll go to the most dangerous place and risk my life. And then for sure, God's going to show up and he's going to do something. Right. And one thing we discovered is that we actually 
more, it's, this is very uncomfortable. On a number of occasions, we're like, oh my gosh, prosperity gospel has impacted me more than I realized. And I don't subscribe to that one bit that like gives me a sick feeling in my stomach. But if I risk this much, then he should do this, right? That's actually prosperity gospel. I put in this into the vending machine and I get this from God. And there's no guarantees about that. And so saviorism means I am the savior. I'm going to go do this thing. And then this is what's going to happen. And that that really puts me on the throne of saving these people. And that's pretty much a guarantee to fail because it's not taking an account of theology of evil. And that those evil people are out there. And uh the, they're operating under the father of evil. And when we're trying to do this on our own as the savior and not relying on the one savior, you know, it's it, not only is it likely to fail, whatever it is, but then oftentimes we've seen people's faith shipwrecked on the rocks because they don't understand why God didn't work. I want to go back to the start of our discussion today when I was just sharing some of my own conflicted feelings about how to view everything that's happening. And specifically, we've been talking about this. In this conversation, we've been talking a lot from the people who are on, from the perspective of those on the field. And I want to talk, bring it back to a little bit of us who are following this as outsiders. You know, for those of us who are trying to make sense of these situations, would you advise us to analyze them based on kind of the motives uh, or what we believe to be the motives of the aid workers and missionaries who, you know, have decided to say, and as a result are kidnapped? Or would you say that there's actually, you know, the fruit of their decisions, be it kidnapping, be it being murdered, whatever it's going to be, that should be the thing that we are using to evaluate the decisions that were made? My heart was immediately just so sad about those men, women, and children that are taken, that were kidnapped. It's such a scary situation. I can't imagine what they're going through. And I I agree with you. There's questions you have about, were they aware? Were they paying attention to the situation? And we, we can very easily jump to what we think would be you know, right or wrong. I, I, I think one thing I'm hoping is that the listeners are hearing that risking is complex. It's very difficult to have a binary right and wrong, black or white answer on these things. John Cho's murder was evaluated extremely harshly by many people. I understand that people want to evaluate and they find, they want to find out what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. I want to caution people from evaluating based on the public media. I would have compassion for the men, women, and children that are kidnapped. And I I think it's quite clear to everybody in Haiti and around the world that this is a dangerous place and people need to consider evacuating or they need to consider their risk if they want to stay, knowing that that's the risk. I think my my just kind of armchair guess is that many Christian organizations didn't realize Haiti was so dangerous. That would be what I would guess. And we've actually been walking ourselves with a couple organizations and consulting with them for them to figure out what they should do. Because it's not just foreigners who are at risk in Haiti. It's all the Haitians that work for that foreign NGO, foreign organization. There's a lot of orphanages that are in danger and so forth. So I I know we want to evaluate. I just would caution against it because people's lives are at stake. And the people who are risking their lives, yeah, it's, it's complex. It's very difficult. 
But I want to pivot to a situation we've all been dealing with and an issue that is you know, very much dividing Christians right now. And that is the kind of masks and vax and you know, vaccine mandates and stuff like that, where you hear a lot of this same rhetoric about faith and fear, you know, especially on masks, to wear a mask is to show fear and that as Christians, we are called to show that that we're not afraid. How would you apply that to kind of all of us with earbuds in our ears right now, trying to manage or talk to folks who who are kind of <laughs> wrestling with you know, risks about masks, risks about COVID-19, risks with how we're witnessing to the world at this moment? We can't agree on everything, right? We're We're a family in God's kingdom. And we're all in a different risk situation when it comes to COVID-19. I'm in a town where there's a lot of old people. So there's times when I might feel that I need to put on the mask out of care for my neighbor. But it's situational, right? And so I guess I want to I wanna draw people back to Jesus himself. And because this is such a complex, thorny question, and there's a lot we can unpack about how we interact with science as Christians. And also people need to know this and they, they probably do to a degree, but confirmation bias in the COVID-19 particular risk and threat is extremely high. And what I mean by that is people can go to the internet to find any data set they want to buttress their view and their approach, right? So that's not actually helpful. We can find anything we want to have our view and we can manipulate that data and we see the data being manipulated as well, right? So it's very difficult to figure that all out. But we do have a standard that Jesus gave us and that is Mark 12, the 29 to 30, when the the young scribe said, what commandment is most important? What he's asking is, what are we supposed to do? And what does Jesus say? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so the question is, is what is the Lord asking the Christian, wherever they are in the world, to do right now in this situation, to love love God and to love their neighbors they love themselves? Does it mean putting on the mask today in this situation? I, I guess the question is, is what is the Lord asking you to do and to encourage people to be honoring to him? And put his leading ahead of nationalism. I know some people won't like that. I, I think I'm always, I'm always suspicious when somebody says this is what the Christian response is. And then they give their view that is probably, you know, stems out of what they actually want and confirmation bias because of whatever data sets they looked at. Well. Thank you so much, Anna, for engaging all these different thorny questions that Ted and I had. I really appreciated our discussion for people with different opinions or opinions that want to validate what Anna and I and Ted discussed today. You can send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com and we hope we gave you a lot to think about in this discussion. So please write to us. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments and it's where we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, you're on deck. I'm just going to, this This just sounds so corny. I always sound so sappy when I say something like this. But yesterday was my wife's birthday. It gave me great joy to celebrate her, to go out to dinner, to just, you know, write her a letter telling her how much I love her. I don't know. And so just to kind of 
like write down to my wife all the things that I, you know, love about her. I it just, it, it gave me joy just to write it, write it down and give it to her. That was, that was a precious moment. And birthdays are, you know, you get older and there's things not to look forward to about birthdays, but there are things just to look back on the previous year and to just celebrate somebody. And even as we, even as, even as we're in middle age and Aww. things about our bodies are failing, it's like, you know what? Birthdays are still pretty great. Birthdays are still pretty great. So my wife's birthday gave me uh, a lot of joy because honestly, the rest of the week was dealt with, the, you know, the pipes in our backyard went, or the pipes under our house went, went bad this weekend. So my other options are really, you know, not so, not so joyful, but, but, but birthday, gave, you know, took us out of that moment. So we went from having to eat out because we had to, because we you know, couldn't run water in our house to eating out because it was a celebration. <laughs> I'm on social media at Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E. Morgan Lee, what has brought you joy? So I am in Ecuador right now. And this past weekend, I spent time in a place called Cuenca, which is much smaller city than Guayaquil, which is where I currently am, or in Quito, where I was last week. One of the things that I really like about Cuenca is that it has different, I don't know, streams, rivers. The river to me kind of implies something that's, you know, maybe 50 meters across. And these were not, but they're just outside of downtown. There's a beautiful stream slash creek slash river that flowed past and lots of bridges and really nice paths along there. In fact, one of the days I went running, which was probably one of the hardest runs I've gone on some time because of the altitude, I definitely was sweating a ton, but also it was just gorgeous to be able to be by nature. Obviously people know that I live in Hawaii, so obviously Hawaii is extremely beautiful, but this is a different type of nature. Also a little bit weird. I mean, I know it's not fall here. It is springtime here, but it is weird to me to be in a place that does not have four seasons and is just kind of green all the time, but not necessarily doesn't have the heat of someplace like Hawaii. So anyway, cheers to the Ecuadorian landscape. And yeah, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at MEP, anyone I know. All right, Anna, over to you. Last night, we had some friends over. My husband and I are new empty nesters, which we're enjoying. And so it was fun to have this couple over and we made Italian pizza and had a good Italian wine. And it was just fun fellowship. It was great. So that brought me joy. What did you put on your pizza? I specifically requested Canadian bacon and pineapple this time. But we have, <laughs> oh, we awesome. Have, of course, we made pepperoni with the fresh basil, and then we've branched out into making Turkish pide, which is a Turkish pizza, and it is phenomenal. Feta and spinach. It's so good. So, yes. Delicious. That's great. And where can people find you online? You have a, you have a, a blog, and where, where can folks find you? Yes. Thank you for that. They're on Instagram, Theology of Risk. And then my blog is better, better than Goldface. If you type in Anna Hampton blog spot, you should be able to find it. We'll be moving over to a theology of risk soon, but right now that's where I'm, I'm available. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Faith and Dovu, and the music is by Sweeps. 
Send us an email. We're at podcast at Christianitytoday.com and we will see you all next week. Bye. Thank you.